Welcome to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. I'm Patty Peterson. In Minnesota, we are very lucky to have many jazz musicians and singers who have performed most of their lives, and some right into their 80s. It's always amazing to hear their stories, and in this show, we will hear from previously recorded interviews and live concert performances. I invite you to sit back and listen to our Minnesota jazz legends, Donald Washington, Ruth Johnson, Dick Peterson, and Ron Seaman. The featured musicians are backed by the house band, Phil Aaron on piano, Graydon Peterson on bass, and Phil Hay on drums. This show is brought to you by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and KBEM. Our first Minnesota jazz legend is Donald Washington, a reed man who grew up in Alabama and Chicago and eventually made his way to the Detroit area, meeting the love of his life, his wife, Faye. After doing a stint in the Army, Donald pursued a teaching degree in music education. He felt that the art of teaching young people how to improvise from the earliest stages of learning their instrument would certainly pay off for them. He encouraged them to take musical liberties and go for it. While teaching, he created a band that received a lot of attention called Bird Train Now. His son Kevin was in it, as well as James Carter and Cassius Richmond, who all went on to great careers. When Faye and Donald moved to the Twin Cities in 1987, they continued performing together in concerts and nightclubs, but Donald also continued his teaching in the Minneapolis public schools. He has remained a staple in the Twin Cities music scene since his arrival, and even though he has retired from teaching music to students, he remains busy doing gigs with colleagues in this vibrant musical community. Keep your hands together for our first Minnesota jazz legend, ladies and gentlemen, Donald Washington. I want to welcome to the show Donald Washington, who is our Minnesota jazz legend. Donald, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. My pleasure. First of all, where were you originally born? Well, I was born in Mobile, Alabama, way down south. south. When you get to Mobile, you can only go to Florida or Mississippi <laughs> or drive over in the Gulf. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, my father brought me to Chicago, and I stayed there for a little while. And I had a couple of brothers that he had by his second wife, you know. Okay. And, uh, and, and my musical ear started when I came to Earth because I've always loved hearing music. And uh, every time I hear somebody rehearsing in a house or somewhere, I'll stop and sit there and just listen. And uh, that was during the time my father got me a clarinet when I was in Chicago about a freshman in high school. Prior to that, did he play music in the house? Yes, he did. And then I started buying records. When you think about it, when you started buying records, who who did you like to listen to? Well, my first records was bought when I was a sophomore in high school. It was Dave Brubeck goes to college, and uh, really, <laughs> yes, James Moody, Flute in the Blues. Oh, nice! And uh, Voodoo Sweep by Prez Prado, and Duke Ellington live at Newport. That was the first records I bought on 35th Street in Chicago, and I didn't know anything about. It. Any of them, they just, I like the way it looked on the front. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, were you already 
playing clarinet, so you Yes, had, I was playing somewhat okay. in high school, just listening whoever I could. You know, it didn't matter whether it was jazz or not. It was just music, period. You know, the singles like Laverne Baker and was popular during that time. And I, and I was going to the Regal to see all these people. And uh, one of my regrets in life was that my father gave me 25 cents to go see Nat King Cole, and I did not go. And I regret that to this day. <laughs> Where did you go if you didn't I go went to see a movie called Destination Moon. Oh. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't miss any shows but that one. And, uh, that you know, you know, I was a kid now. I was about 10 years old. And I went that Destination Moon just fascinated me. You were, you were just one who was in love with the music with scene. Music. So, did you segue over to saxophone later in your life? Uh, yes, that's when I went back to Mobile, and I was playing the clarinet, and a rock band hired me, and they wanted me to get a saxophone, so I went and found me an alto saxophone, and that's where I started with the saxophone. Spent my last two years in high school in Alabama. Okay. At a school called St. Elmo, which is kind of a little rural area about 20 miles uh, west of Mobile. I had a grandfather that lived down in Grand Bay, Alabama, which okay. is about five miles from Mississippi. And I went to stay with them, just, you know, doing that, no cell phones back then, so I just showed up at the door. Oh, oh really? <laughs> they accepted me. <laughs> well, see, my grandfather was, was a violin player. Yeah, I never heard him, but I saw the violin hanging on the wall. And uh, grandfather, my father's father on the other side of the family, told me one time that the white people from somewhere down in Grand Bay used to come get him to play the violin, you know, and uh, so wow. that's the way he told me, you know. <laughs> so sure. I, I said, yo, yeah. he must have been good. <laughs> so you have music in your bloodline. Yes, right. Yeah. And my grandmother on my father's side, she played piano. See, now it was part of you before you even realized it right, was a part you know, of you, so like you said. I didn't think about that then, but when I look back on it, that was part of it, you know. Donald Washington, everyone. Thank you. I wanted to let people know a little bit about you and how you came to the Twin Cities. You were not originally from here, right? Yeah, I moved to Detroit, and then I decided that Detroit wasn't where it was. I had to move, and Minnesota became the place, and I haven't regretted the move yet. That's great. <laughs> so yeah. you are an educator, right, in oh, yes, addition I, to being a musician? Uh, uh, yes, I went to school and got me a degree, and I, and I, and I taught for about 30-some years, right? Taught in Detroit for about 15 or 16, and then I moved here and taught about 15 or 16. And the one thing I'm proud about being an educator is that I'm still in touch with some of the students I met when they was in the sixth grade. Oh, and my right? gosh. <laughs> Name a couple of the students who you even taught music. Well, one main one is James Carter. He, I, I started teaching him yeah. when he was in, in the sixth grade, you know. And, uh, and also Rodney Whitaker, who was a bassist, who's now the head of the jazz department at Michigan State. Right, and so Isn't that marvelous, uh, and that's that's really something to, to be still in touch with these students. They still call, <laughs> you know. I'm still their teacher, <laughs> and I didn't only teach them about music. I talked about life too at the sessions that we got together at my home in Detroit, and we said, you know, if you, one day you'll be married and you have children, and you're gonna have to deal with it, you know. You allowed kids when they were really young and just starting when you were teaching them band. You allowed them to improvise in the moment. Oh, yes. Uh, and there's a reason for that. 
Yes, I, uh, after the kids get their fingers together and they can hold the instrument and they, they get about three or four or five, six notes under their fingers, I started them to improvise and we called it Art of the Moment. And uh, I told them, just, just, just play. And you'd be surprised how that hangs them up. You say, play what, Mr. Washington? I say, I just talked to you about five notes. Play them any way you want to. And it just started like that. I'm saying, you know, then later on they got into bebop and, and all the avant-garde. I, I took them through the whole thing, the Jane Brown. I didn't just stop at the conventional music, you know. And then I met Roscoe Mitchell, the Art Ensemble of Chicago. They came and gave workshops and all that. And so, you know, I wanted to give them the full spectrum of music. And then they had the choice to do what they wanted to do. I didn't tell them they should do this particular music or that particular music. And I didn't try to hold on to them like they were mine, you know what I mean? Just know your craft and you do what you want to do. And they did. It's really a pleasure just to know that they went out and did that, you know what I mean? I wasn't, wasn't looking for that. And uh, like I said, they still call me. I'm proud of that, though. <laughs> you know, and I love that. Not only were they exploring, but they were learning to trust themselves. Mm -hmm. What a huge piece of advice and wisdom to hand to little kids and to encourage them. So thank you for what you're doing and what you've done. And congratulations on being a Minnesota jazz legend. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> And so here you are, and you are in Minneapolis, and uh, how did you start playing gigs? What was the first place you went? Who did you meet? Oh, okay. well, the artist quarters was going on then, and I had a friend here called Willard Jenkins. Yes. He was living here during that time, him and his wife, Susan. I'm okay. very good friends with them, and he had been to Detroit, and I'd had a record out on the kids' group, Bird Train Schoolhouse, and he brought that record back over here, and he knew Imp Ork which is, uh, was led by John Devine and, and Michelle Kenny, And it was an improvisational orchestra. And, and we used to play at the Walker. That's where it all started from. And, and, and Willa Jenkins told me about them. It really was Willa. Uh, they featured people like Julius Hemphill and Roscoe Mitchell came in. They featured him. I oh, think they was getting grant great. money, you know. Sure. And Ernie Watts, he came in and, and played with us, you know. and. Uh, that's and, and it just seems like it's natural to you, like you're breathing when you talk about your music. This is a mission in life for you, is to be music, isn't it? Yes, I'm glad you said that because I firmly believe that the Creator put me here to do what I'm doing. And it's, that's what I'm supposed to do. And I mean, you know, from the way it came about, I didn't think about that at the beginning. You know, but after a friend of mine told me that the Creator didn't put them kids in anybody's hands. and. Uh, and uh, I said, hmm, that kind of shook me a little bit. Right. <laughs> you know, right. Yeah. And, and, and then I started, and John Coltrane believed that he was here to do what he do. And I said to myself, that's what I'm here to do. Because if I was supposed to do something else, I would have been doing it. This is what I'm supposed, I'm here for. So really worked with some big name people. I'm looking at this. Some of the people: Donald Byrd, Roy Brooks, Jackie McLean, mm -hmm. Roscoe. You've mentioned Roscoe Mitchell and uh, Julius Hemphill, and, and, and Ernie Watts, yeah, Ernie Williams, Williams James Carter, Reginald Buckner. Oh, talk, talk to me about some of the highlights you've experienced as a musician here. 
Okay, well, I did a thing here once called uh, Hubbaphone Henry T. That was dedicated to uh, Henry Threadgill. Uh, I went to a concert in Detroit, and he had a, a Hubbaphone, which is hubcaps off a car, you know, the hubcaps. Yes. And he made an instrument out of that. And I was very impressed with that. <laughs> and then uh, I came here, I wrote a, a grant, and they gave me the money to do a, a, a composition called Hubbaphone Henry T. And this was the music that I was influenced by from, from seeing him play those hubcaps. It was hubcaps, you know. Cause, yeah. Because Kevin and I would be driving around in the, the city here. Every hubcap we see on the ground, we would stop and, and pick it up. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> right. Was there any time that stands out that was tough on you? Well, I wouldn't say tough. I'd just say an, an experience <laughs> of life, you know. The first group I played with in Mobile, I was playing the clarinet, and uh, <clears throat> it was a rock, rock, and rock band, so to speak, a rhythm and blues, I really wanted to determine it. And uh, I guess they didn't want me to play with them anymore, and they, was, and they wouldn't tell me when they was playing somewhere, <laughs> you know. Oh. <laughs> And one time I showed up, you know, I mean, not knowing that they didn't want me anymore, you know. And then he finally told me that they didn't, they didn't want me anymore. You know? What a rough way to learn about the music business. <laughs> yeah, As a young jazz artist, a young artist wanting to get into the business, what advice would you give them? I would tell them what to practice and what to look for in others, you know, in terms of playing with other people and, uh, and, and you know, make sure you're proficient on your instrument <laughs> you know, and whatever he does, you know, and just make sure you talk business with the people. You know, I mean, in, in terms of getting your money, <laughs> make sure that is straight. Gentlemen, Donald Washington. Thank you. Ruth Johnson came to Minneapolis by way of Wisconsin, where she was raised in a musical family. She grew up hearing polkas and shadishes, and when she moved to Minneapolis and attended North High, there were groups who emulated the four freshmen. They quickly grabbed a hold of her musical talents and taught her jazz chords so she could back them in concerts. Ruth continued her love of keyboards by learning how to play the organ, including the foot pedals, and performing on both piano and organ around the state of Minnesota and the Twin Cities. Ruth's solo work had her performing at the Ambassador and at the top of the Sheraton in Minneapolis, but she was also invited to work in New York City, where Stan Getz left her a note complimenting her on her vocal styling and piano work. 
Ruth's mission is to bring joy to people through her love of music, and this summer, she will be celebrating her 60th year in the music business. Now, here's Minnesota jazz legend Ruth Johnson Pelness. I want to welcome to Minnesota jazz legends. She is an amazing pianist and a wonderful vocalist. Please put your hands together for the beautiful Ruth Johnson, everyone. Well, every time it rains, it rains, pennies from heaven. Don't you know each cloud contains pennies from heaven? You find your fortune falling all over town. Make sure that your umbrella is upside down. Trade it for a package of sunshine and flowers. If you want the things you love, you gotta have showers. So if you hear a thunder, don't run under a tree. There'll be pennies from heaven for you and me. influences while you were growing up? Oh, absolutely. At age three, my father's band, including my mother and my brother, used to practice at our home. I fell into the whole thing. It just was music. always just followed me everywhere. Every time it rains, it rains, pennies from heaven. Don't you always clap and sings, pennies from heaven. You find your fortune falling. Make sure that your umbrella is upside down. Trade for a package of sunshine and flowers. If you want the things you love, you gotta have showers. So if you hear a thunder, throw it under a tree. There'll be pennies from heaven for you and me. Thank you. You guys are so good. So, Ruth, I got to talk a little bit about the fact you weren't born here, but you were raised in a musical family, and they played a little different style of music. Oh, than, yes. Polkas oh. and shadishes and waltzes. And did you? And, and what I loved about this is that when they were working together as a family... And playing at our house. And then when they went to go do a gig or a dance... That was my babysitter. Yeah, she went along because there was no babysitter, so she went along and listened to this music. Yep. Yep. How old were you when you first started playing the piano? Um, Mom said I used to play a little tune every day, the same tune, about three. Age three. 
So you had been working with them a little bit, having some fun, and um, I know that you came to Minneapolis and you went to North High, and those polkas and shanishes quickly changed when you yes, got into you, the music. you're not going to play triads, now you're going to play these other things, and I have no idea what chords they play still, or what key I'm in still. But this was somebody in school, and you said they had a group like the Four Freshmen. The you remember four the freshmen, Four Freshmen? Yes, they were very instrumental because I have a very strong ear. I picked up on all their chords. And Holly Fisher and Sanford Margolis, they were fantastic. And they said, now you're not going to play polkas and shadishes. You're going to be playing more like George Shearing and oh. Bill Evans and okay. some of these guys. And I just picked up on those chords and I've been playing them ever since. But I still love to play polkas and I love to dance polkas. Oh, my gosh. But then you also played in New York City. I did, Talk thanks about to that. your sister, Linda. I played at the Cattleman West. She played at the Cattleman East. But we were put up to stay at the Algonquin, where all the writers of the 20s and the 30s stayed. Jeez, that's They weren't bad. there then, I have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't you tell me the story of a very special someone who uh, left you a note to the side of the a piano? A little note. I don't know what he ripped it off of, but he wrote on there, loved my music, loved my voice, only Chris Connor, June Christie. And his name? Stan Getz. How cool is that? I still have that. That's a very old piece of paper. <laughs> so you did continue playing when you were in Minneapolis. You played the top of the Sheraton Ritz and the IDS. I and went around in a circle on the Sheraton Ritz, if anybody remembers, on the top Oh, my floor. gosh. Yes. All right. But you were also at the Ambassador for yes, many, for many years, right? Twice for 13 years total. Oh, gosh. See what I'm saying? This woman doesn't quit. She's amazing. But I was a terrible cook. <laughs> I didn't okay. have time to cook, so my kids would say, Mom, who's coming over? You're cooking. It's like, oh, okay. Oh, my gosh. Will you do another song? I will do one. Oh. Ruth Johnson, everyone. featured some of your music on Jazz 88 out of a CD called uh, Out of Nowhere. Really a great disc. Well, Russ Peterson and I got together and went over to Jim Reynolds' studio in North Minneapolis, and I just sat down on the piano and just was going through a fake book looking at titles, and all of a sudden it was like Out of Nowhere song came on, which I had always liked, and so I just started playing it, and of course Russ, so fantastic, he just... He just came in with every kind of background possible between the sax, flute, and a bass. You came to me from out of nowhere. You took my heart and found it free. 
Wonderful dreams, wonderful schemes from nowhere. Made every hour sweet as a flower for me. If you should go back to your nowhere, leaving me with a memory, I'll always wait for your return out of nowhere, hoping you'll bring. Your love to me. nowhere here comes the new love of your yeah, life yeah just he's literally came out of nowhere and he he bought my tape but he didn't have money to pay for it that night he didn't want to put it on his charge so he came back and gave me the money for the tape and then i said well you get the tape and the musician with it and so you ended up with him and spent many wonderful yes. years with him until almost 27 winter. you came to me from out of nowhere you took my heart and found it free Wonderful dreams, wonderful schemes from nowhere Made every hour sweet as a flower for me If you should go back to your nowhere Turn out of nowhere Hoping you'll bring your love to me You had done some work on uh, a cruise ship for uh, that was on the Yangtze River. Yes, Marilyn Sellers says, Ruth, I need you to come with me on a cruise. I need you to back me up. And I said, oh, that sounds great. Where is that? And she says, uh, it's on the Yangtze River in China. Oh, that sounds great. So we were there for 26 days based out of Beijing and then flying into Wuhan of all places. Uh-huh. And so we were on two 800-mile cruises up the river to Chongqing, and then we'd flew back to Beijing. And then in between, we went to Xi'an to where all those terracotta warriors are. Oh, my gosh. So that was quite an experience. And that was through Dayton's travel, but it was because of Marilyn Sellers that I got in on that. point in the music industry that was disturbing or very discouraging? I have never really been discouraged. I don't dwell on anything like that. Okay, how about a high point in your musical career? Having a chance to play in New York was great. I really enjoyed that. I got to go to plays during the day and jazz clubs at night. 
Um, Ruth, uh, how old will you be on your next birthday? Well, I just turned 81, and I'm not going to push it. I don't blame you. <laughs> and if I can share with you something my mother would say, age is a number and mine's unlisted. I love that. I, I li- love it. Thank you for doing this. This is just a beautiful woman. <laughs> your tears are because she went through a loss this year of her husband. And this is so brave and wonderful of you to come up here and do this, and I He'd love you. He'd be so proud. He'd be. Yeah. He's such a fan, such a fan. And so are we. Ruth Johnson Kellness, everybody. Love you, honey. You are listening to Minnesota jazz legends, The Elders. Our next Minnesota jazz legend is Dick Peterson, the left-handed banjo man and leader of the Barbary Coast Dixieland Show Band. Dick loved music and initially was influenced while listening to the Arthur Godfrey's radio show where they featured a baritone ukulele. That led him to want to try a stringed instrument and eventually set his sights on the banjo. The gift of a banjo was from his wife and it changed their lives forever. Dick joined and led many Dixieland-oriented bands, and with such great musicians, they could perform a wide range of shows, which included beautiful hymns, show tunes, and one special arrangement of a Star Wars theme song that really makes Dick smile to this day. Some of his closest musician friends remained with him for many years, and Dick Ramber, who felt like a brother to him, would always play clarinet on a very special song that to this day still touches Dick's heart. We will hear about that later on in the broadcast. Dick was inducted into the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame in addition to many other accolades the group acquired over the years. Now, here's banjo man, Dick Peterson. I want to welcome to Minnesota jazz legends, a friend of the family and a friend of the Twin Cities. His name is Dick Peterson. He was the leader and the founder of Barbary Coast Dixieland Band. So great to have you with us, Dick. Thank you so much for coming into the studio and letting us get to know you a little bit better. Well, it's my pleasure, Patty. Pleasure to be here. So growing up, was there anyone in your household that played music as well and it was that your influence unfortunately uh, the answer is no <clears throat> my folks loved music but they didn't play so how did you get bitten by the bug well cco at that time uh, in the 60s was um, featuring arthur godfrey on their morning show and as i was traveling on in my insurance career i always had cco on and uh, i always liked the sound of the baritone ukulele that uh, arthur godfrey played okay so were you impressed enough to go and learn how to play it? I sure was. I went over to Raleigh Williams Music Store and picked up a baritone ukulele and started taking lessons from him. You did. How were you? Not very good. <laughs> so what did it lead to? Well, <clears throat> taking lessons from Raleigh Williams, um, uh, met Bill Peer, who was a friend of his. And uh, as I walked through the studio one, his studio one morning and bill peer was there and uh, got introduced and bill said you got that baritone uke let me see it 
and he started to play it. And I thought, oh my goodness, he's playing chords and melody. Uh, and I read away that I have to take lessons from Bill Peer. And so I found out his phone number and called him that night. And he says, yeah, come over on Saturday. So I came over on Saturday and uh, he said, well, we've got a little problem here. You're playing left-handed and the strings are right-handed. He says, you need to either play right-handed or change the strings. I said, well, I'll change the strings. And he had a fantastic way of teaching people. You didn't have to know a thing about music. All you had to do was look at the chart that he put on a piece of paper and showed you where to put your fingers and how many times to strum the baritone. So how long did you keep up with that? Uh, for about, um, I suppose, six months of taking lessons. But on he actually was giving banjo lessons. And I always loved the sound of a banjo. So on uh, June of... 1962, I went over for a lesson, and he said, uh, I've got this banjo, and I turned it left-handed for you. Uh, why don't you take it home? I said, Bill, I don't, I can't afford it. I'm just starting my insurance business. I don't have any money. My wife just graduated from university. She's just starting out as a dental hygienist, and uh, we are just, we can't afford it. He said, don't worry about it. Just bring it back if you have to. So I took it home, and I didn't have the nerve to bring it in the house. And I left it in the car for a couple hours, and I finally got it and opened the door to our back, our back door. And I said, Carol, I got something to show you. And she says, look on the kitchen table. And on the kitchen table was an anniversary card, our second year anniversary. And she says, I hope you like your banjo. She went out and borrowed $350 oh to buy the banjo. Oh, my gosh. She says, I just bought it for the... I thought you'd have fun with it. I never dreamt you'd make any money with it. And it changed our life. seeing in your history that you had done some work at the Golden uh, Garter and you had something going on on the second floor up there. What was that experience? Dave Wesley actually started the Barbary Coast Band and he originally had the levee loungers at the Golden Garter and uh, Dave Wesley was quite a showman and quite a banjo player and uh, he had this group called the levee loungers and they were there from 61 to 64 and they decided that they wanted to go to Diamond Jim's uh, nightclub in Lilydale. And one of the fellows in the band, Don Lunning, the banjo player, did not want to go full-time playing. And so he stayed behind, and he then hired me, and we had uh, a banjo band. We ended up calling it the Riverboat Ramblers. <laughs> and so 1960, I went over to Dick Ramberg's house, I asked Dick, would you be interested in joining our band? We're playing every Friday and Saturday night at the Golden Garter. And he said, well, right now I'm with Doc Evans, and we're at the Gaslight. But Doc Evans is taking a sabbatical, 90-day sabbatical, so I'll be free. So Dick and I joined up, and it's been like he's been like my brother ever since. So, so incredible. So I understand that you were calling it the Riverboat Ramblers, but that isn't the name that it ended up to be. I wondered about that name and when you chose to change it. Okay, going back to the Golden Garden when we were the Ramblers, 
the 1965 flood shut down the place. Okay. And so uh, I stopped playing and I uh, just taken the kind of a hiatus. And Willie, your father, was hiring Dick and I to do some jobs and gigs. But in spring of 67, Dave West, they called me. And he said, uh, I want to start another band with five banjos, piano, tuba, and drums. And we're going to call it Doc Wesley's Barbary Coast Banjo Band. And I said, that sounds okay. So we got rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing uh, all that summer of 67. And November 3rd of 1967, we had our grand opening. And the place was absolutely packed. 250 people there uh, just having a ball. And that was the norm for the next five years. Well, how exciting. Talk to me about what occurred after that job. Well, Patty, that's a really good question. Because what, what happened is that Dave Wesley decided in 75 that he had enough of the music and he was just going to get out of the entertainment business. And so at that time, I took over the leadership of the band in 75 and wanted to go a different direction. I wanted to do more on Dixieland rather than just a banjo band type thing, sing-along. Sure. We decided to change the personnel to only have one banjo player, and that would be me. And Dick Ramberg was on it. We hired Tom Rechtdahl on trumpet. And Jim Tenbenzel was kind of part-time with us, but Bill Butler was our main trombone player. And then we had um, Tom Andrews and Bob Andrews on bass and drums. Choosing to change up some of the format and the songs and the personnel, when you changed it so dramatically, what kinds of shows did you play then? We did a lot of corporate shows at hotels. In those years, that was kind of the rage that uh, corporations had the money and the, they wanted to do that. And uh, that time we had uh, Russ Peterson, your cousin, joined us. He played uh, originally started playing string bass with us because he can play anything. And it turned out to be our, our trumpet player. band started traveling, and I know you got really involved into doing concerts at churches. How did this all come to be? Well, 1984, Bob Andrews, who was with us at the time, and like Bob Andrews and Bill Morris and Scott Crosby, uh, formed The Medicine Show, which was a really fun fun show. And if you get right. a chance to catch it, it's really yes. great. But Bob at that time, and he, he was active in his church, St. James Lutheran Church in Burnsville, asked us to come and play um, some music for their church service. So we ended up playing How Great Thou Art, uh, Amazing Grace, Just a Closer Walk With Thee, When the Saints Go Marching In. We just had fun doing that. But it gave Bill Butler an idea. Bill was our trombone player. Okay. He, li he lived in Chisago City, but it was the choir director for Faith Lutheran Church in Forest Lake. So he asked us if we could come and accompany his choir and on some songs and play some instrumentals as well. So we did that in in uh, July of 2000, excuse me, July of 1984, I should say. And we have been there at that church 
every single year for 35 years that we mm. stopped playing. My gosh. And it's, uh, it's probably over the 52 years that we played, the church services were by far our most favorite venue. That had to be so fulfilling for you. Oh, it was great. In fact, every Sunday before a church service, we would all meet for breakfast, and that became our tradition. And uh, it was uh, just a real bonding of some great musicians and great guys, and that's what we kind of miss. I'm sure you do. I want to uh, jump a little bit now to another part of your career with them. You became recording artists. How many CDs does Barbary Coast have? All the recordings we got, um, 18 recordings that we've done over the years. 18. Do you have a favorite album? I think the, my favorite arrangement is with one of Diamond Gems. We did Star Wars. Uh, the guys did a phenomenal job. Jim Stewart on drums is unbelievable how, how he played. Music Hall of Fame. How did that feel? It felt great, uh, but it was not me. It was the Barbary Coast Dixieland Band that was inducted. And uh, how that came about is we were at the State Fair in, in 2000, and Bruce Bradley uh, was had a polka band. It was a great polka band, and we shared the stage with him, the heritage stage, and got to be friends with him. And he let me know that he was... Um, on the board of directors of the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame, and he was going to recommend us, and that's how that happened. Well, it was quite an honor. Well, congratulations on that, and uh, it, it is quite a ceremony, isn't it? It was fantastic. Uh, they asked us to play, um, and we did. And I'd like to say something about uh, Dick Ramberg. His signature tune, whether we played the fairgrounds or whether we played corporate shows or, or churches, was just a closer walk with thee. And he could play it. It's just... He, he was different because he played it right from the heart. You could feel it when he played. It, it was just so emotional. But something happened on September 30th of 2012 where he, uh, we were at Middleton, Wisconsin, and there was a St. Luke's Lutheran Church there. And usually he would play Closer Walk for an offering. And that was just pretty normal. So the first service, we played Closer Walk. It was great. Second service, he started playing. Have you ever heard some music that just gives you goosebumps? Oh, yes. Well, that was right there uh, with Dick. And I looked, turned to Russ, and he was just, his mouth was open. He says, wow. He says, you know, we've heard him play this hundreds and hundreds of times. And I couldn't believe he was just giving it at all. He was incredible. Thank you. 
Yes. High points are just being with the guys and playing music and seeing the audience react to whoever was playing. And the, and the band acted as a team and they're very supportive. And uh, it was just fun and just special to be able to, to celebrate the Lord with our music. And you have. Thank you, Dick Peterson. Oh, thank you, Betty. Been a pleasure being here. Our next Minnesota jazz legend is Ron Seaman. Ron is an accomplished keyboardist who not only played 50s rock and roll and Dixieland, but has also backed some of the more popular show groups in the Twin Cities, like the Edgewater Eight. Ron has performed every night of the week, especially when he was in groups that focused on popular music like show tunes and Top 40. However, Ron's real love has always been in jazz, since hearing George Shearing on the radio when he was only 15. That changed the course of his life. He continually looked for teachers to help him with the voicings on the piano, and with Ron's musical ear, his harmonics for the jazz standards are wonderful to hear to this day. Now here's Minnesota jazz legend, Ron Seaman. I would like to welcome to the stage a pianist who is a dear friend, Mr. Ron Seaman. such a brilliant artist. What was it like growing up? Did your folks play music? My folks wanted each kid to take piano lessons, and we all started right around seven or eight. My dad was a trumpet player. He got us involved with music, and I found myself taking lessons, and I just loved it. Right around sixth grade, the band director said, we're low on trumpets. We need more trumpet players. Good. It morphed itself into baritone horn. And the baritones always play the counter melodies, all the really cool melodies that the rest of the band isn't playing. If you, if you listen to a Sousa march, you'll hear the baritone horns are doing all the fun stuff. I loved all that. I was in band from sixth grade to all the way through high school, as well as took piano lessons the whole time. I used to listen to a station that was coming from the South that played jazz. And I heard George Shearing playing Lullaby Birdland. And I said, whoa, wait a minute, what is this? 
I flipped me right over. And I said, I've got to learn. I had no idea what he was doing. I had no idea what it was. This was a whole different thing. It was a piano player, and he was improvising. And I thought, what the heck? I, I really liked it. from the band at Augie's. Oh, my first steady professional gig. And up in Avenue, The Strip, aptly named The Strip. <laughs> so I was there two years, and we got 135 bucks a week, six nights a week. And this was the beginning of the Vietnam War. And all of a sudden, I got drafted. I knew the minute I got drafted, I had a month to get my affairs together. I went down to B.A. Rose Music and rented a baritone horn. And my thought was, if you have a skill in the Army, that's what you get to do. Well, I thought, if I'm a baritone horn player, I'll be in the Army band. They're not going to send me into combat if I'm in the band. I never went over there. No kidding. Two years. Where were you stationed? Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, because you have to go through basic training, eight weeks. And during that eight weeks, they'll say, who wants to audition for the band? And so I auditioned, they said, great, you're in the band. After the eight weeks, I went right straight to the band, and I was a platoon sergeant, by the way. I got promoted. So I'm in charge of 45 guys in the, in the barracks. I got my own room. So anyway, I end up in the band. It was great. We're playing back like in high school. I played gigs at night because off the base, there's always clubs, bars, strip places, all of that, and they all had bands in them. So I would play that four or five nights a week and did the band thing during the day. There was a law back then that if you got drafted and you had a job, when your time was up, you were guaranteed that job back. I got a phone call. I'm in the barrack, and they said, do you want to come back to Hoggins? So I said, yes. I was in so many groups like that and playing My Fair Lady. We're doing all those clubs right. 10 years, and I'm not learning George Shearing anyway. I'm still not making the money that I need to be making. For one thing, I got married in 72, had a baby at 73, and I've, now I've got a family. I'm thinking this is maybe not the best way for me to support a family. So what do you do? So I said, I'm gonna try something different. I went to Control Data Institute and learned how to program computers. The money about tripled 
when you start programming computers. In the 80s, nobody knew what a computer was. Oh, you were in demand. I mean, I was at the beginning, luckily. Now, as I've got computer work and artwork, and what's getting big? Graphics, digital graphics, art and computers. Hello. And I went all over the country as a technical repair guy. So I ended up in California and Hollywood and down south and in New York. I'd fly in, everything paid for, it was great. How long did you do that? Two different companies. I did that for eight years at cable and about five at the other place. Oh my gosh. That was, I liked it. And were you playing music at all? Yep, Phil was doing Edgewater 8 shows. In 1995 came the Jazz Cartel. Once we got it all together, we made the CD and it was received very well. I got a big fat review from Downbeat Magazine. I got three stars out of five. That is marvelous. Yeah, I loved it. Well, and I thought right away, let's back this up with another one. like to ask whether or not there was a particular challenge musically that stands out to you. Bebop soloing. It's extremely difficult. Now let me ask you this. In contrast, do you have something that was a complete highlight musically? You know, the whole 70s for me was a blast. It was a party every night. People came there, they wanted to have fun, you were entertaining. I had fun that whole decade. You want to gig? Do you want? Do you have any more? Take a gig? nap. No. Oh. <laughs> okay, Ron. Do you have any more gigs yeah. coming up? I do. I, I figured out I got enough hair for about five more gigs. Ron, will you do another song I for will. us? It's Ron Seaman, everybody.
What do you have advice for somebody who wants to get into this business, who feels they have some talent? I do. Learn your instrument inside out. If you're playing piano and you're learning tunes, learn them in every key. I backed a lot of singers and they all don't do everything in the same key. You've got to be able to do that. If you don't do it, someone else is gonna. If you're doing scales, if you're doing pentatonics, all that stuff, when you're practicing by yourself, your ego can get in the way. Because sometimes you've got every good intention and you'll sit down and you'll say, okay, I always play everything in C and F and G and B flat. I'm gonna play this tune in E. And you start playing and it's crummy and you're playing the wrong chords and the notes you don't know what to play. Your ego's gonna say, Forget this, you sound better in F. And you go back to playing where you sound good. Now I'm back to where I sound good. Next time you say, I'm gonna do that in B or D flat. These are hard keys. Who the heck writes in D flat? But they do. You start playing and it's wrong. And you can't figure it out, it's hard work. And you go, ah, I'm going back to C where I sound good. That's what you've gotta fight your ego when you're rehearsing. Wow, what great advice. Ron Seaman, thank you so much for being here with us. Jazz legend Ron Seaman. Well, thanks. It was fun reminiscing. You've been listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, executive producer and host, Patty Peterson. The featured musicians were backed by the house band, Phil Aaron on piano, Graydon Peterson on bass, and Phil Hay on drums. Production engineers are Steve Weiss and Miles Hansen from Creation Audio and Plus Six Productions. Editing and mixing by Miles Hansen. Special thanks to Gruner Supper Club for the use of their stage for the live concert. The Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, are funded by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This is a production of KBEM Radio. Welcome to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. I'm Patty Peterson. In Minnesota, we're very lucky to have many musicians and singers who have performed most of their lives and some right into their 80s. It's always amazing to hear their stories and in this show, we will hear from previously recorded interviews and live concert performances. We will learn about their start in the jazz scene, their high points and their challenges, and finally, their continued passion for this art form. Our musical guests are familiar to many, and I hope by the end of this broadcast, you will know them even better. I invite you to sit back and listen to our Minnesota jazz legends, Art Resnick, Carol Martin, Maurice Jaycox, and Kenny Horst. The featured musicians are backed by the house band, Phil Aaron on piano, Graydon Peterson on bass, and Phil Hay on drums. This show is brought to you by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and Jazz 88. Pianist, writer, and recording artist Art Resnick is our next Minnesota jazz legend. Art began playing piano in his mid-teens after hearing Ahmad Jamal play in New York. He's not only toured and recorded with Twin Cities legendary players, but also some of the best-known jazz dignitaries in the world, such as Freddie Hubbard, Nat Adderley, and James Moody. Please help me welcome to the stage Art Resnick. 
what I'm going to do is play a couple of tunes that I wrote. Uh, I lived in Paris for a year, and I wrote one of them in Paris. It's called Soleil Revenu, which means uh, Return of the Sun. grow up in a musical family. I started uh, just fooling around, no lessons or anything, uh, with a piano after I, I was given some piano lessons. That, that was when I was like, I don't know, 10. And then when I was uh, about 14 or 15 and uh, I begged for a piano, we got an old rickety upright, I started just playing. My first jazz influence was from my uncle who managed Basin Street East where Peggy Lee, Ama Jamal, and he, uh, his uncle introduced me to uh, Ama Jamal. Well, that blew me away. He is just a master of form. Ahmad, he just, he would take a common standard and turn it into something. Uh, and that was a very strong influence on me and that's what I do. I had been going to college in Iowa State. And uh, by the way, I went to school with Dave Sanborn. Dave went to San Francisco, gave me a phone number, and uh, said, yeah, if you're out this way, give me a call, you know. And then I ran into somebody who was driving to San Francisco, so I just hopped a ride. When I got there, this is an ironic, interesting part. He dropped me off on 8 and Frederick, and there was a phone booth. Now, this is 1968, the Summer of Love was happening. And so I call the number, and some weird-sounding guy answers the phone, and I say, is Dave Sanborn around, a friend of his? He said, Dave went on the road with somebody. However, uh, we, he was talking, he said, are you a musician? I said, yeah, I play keyboard. At that time, that's what I played. He said, well, we just lost our keyboard player. By that time, I had been playing a lot of jazz, but I was also playing, you know, electric keyboard, Rhodes and uh, harpsichordy thing and right, so sure. forth. So that's when we played in this band that it was first called New Salvation Army Band, B-A-N-N-E-D, but it became Salvation. ABC picked us up. In fact, uh, the producer of John Coltrane 
Bob Thiel was our producer for these two albums. They were trying to get into rock. We were invited to do the Fillmore East. We rode a bus. We had this crazy-looking bus. Uh, rode it all the way to uh, New York. When we were in New York, they had a meeting, this long conference table with all the heads of their departments and the president and everybody else. And the lead singer jumped up on top of the table and started singing and doing stuff. And everybody was just too crazy for them. They immediately dropped it. you start in this music business? I mean, how old were you when you started playing piano and loving piano? I was a late starter. I was in my uh, probably mid-teens, about 14, 15, when I started actually trying to play. But by the time I was a senior in high school, I was I wanted up playing in a kind of an R&B band. Been through the mill with about every kind of band other than country. Oh, I have never played polka in my life. Then where did you go from there? Because I know you have such a great history. I want to get to it. My first gig was in Minneapolis playing at, I think it was Duffy's on 26th and 26th. Oh, yeah. With Augie Garcia. It was just me, a drummer, and Augie. But to fast forward a little bit, you were here in the Twin Cities and you worked with Bobby Rockwell, the wonderful saxophonist. You worked with Billy Peterson and you worked under your own name. I know I'm jumping ahead, but uh, they can hear your history. It took me a while. It took me the 70s where I really put it together. I mean, I worked hard on playing jazz, listening. Back then, we didn't have, like, schools and all the rest of that stuff. It was, uh, it was mostly you had to listen okay. to records and learn to play by hearing it. And wound up recording with Billy and a wonderful drummer, Paul uh, Lagos, who loved uh, his and work. Bob Rockwell. And uh, Bob and I wound up, like, after playing around town, for about five years. Uh, we both just took off for New York together, got a place on the Upper West Side. Fun. And uh, Bob immediately got into uh, the Fat Jones uh, big band. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And uh, we started playing with some great players. I had a Minnesota, Minneapolis uh, manager, Larry Burley. And he got us this gig, even though we were in New York, and we found uh, this, these incredible uh, other sidemen, uh, Rufus Reed and Victor Lewis. And we toured Alaska for the Alaska Arts Council. We were there for a month and then back to New York. Yeah, we, we had so much fun playing together on the road. We played at logging camps as well as, as, well as uh, major clubs. Yeah, yeah. yeah in, in Alaska. Okay, yeah. that's pretty incredible. Yeah. So when we got back, we decided we wanted to stick together. We played uh, around New York. This was Expedition, okay. right? We called it Expedition. Then we got the call to go with uh, Freddie Hubbard to, uh, to Australia, and we spent a wow. month doing that. And when I got back, I got a call from uh, somebody in San Diego to come and teach at uh, San Diego State 
and have a steady jazz gig. Played with uh, some of the West Coast players I from see. L.A. They'd come down and play for the weekend. I went from San Diego, I went to Paris. Right. played in Europe, and uh, I was in the backup band for a few other people, like uh, Nat Adderley. Yeah, we made a record, actually. I think it's called We Remember Cannon. So you um, did a little recording when you were in Portland, but you chose to come home and be with family again. You haven't been here very long, right? I managed to get here about a few months before the COVID thing happened. And you were going to perform here at Crooners with... Bobby Shue. Bobby Shue, because you also backed him. And that didn't happen because of COVID, correct? Right. But you're here. Would you do another song for us, please? Sure. playing with uh, jazz saxophonist uh, Benny Goldson and I wrote an homage to Benny called uh, he wrote Along Came Betty so I wrote a tune called Along Came Benny gave up playing for about uh, two and a half years before I came here. Well, I lost my desire to play. Now, I replaced it with something else. I've always been interested in classical music. I studied it a couple different times, years, and I also, uh, not for playing, but for writing it. Uh, Writing modern classical music and, and melding jazz with with the more modern classical music. So uh, I got involved in a, in a uh, national organization which had a chapter, has a chapter. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm on YouTube in two different places. One is under my name, but the other one's under their name. And it has many of my pieces, classical it influenced is. by jazz. Yeah. I even did a concert. Well, it was two parts first part was all my original classical music. When they're performed, they're performed by uh, symphony musicians, that level of players. There's like video recordings of them on on YouTube. Uh, It's called Cascadia Composers. So I was very active in that. What advice might you give a young up-and-coming artist about their art? I was about to say, find another job. Like play, get, get inspired from within. Make statements, make a story. When you solo, tell a story. Or even if it's a ballad, say something meaningful that you feel inside that an audience will relate to no matter what kind of music they listen to. And that took me 50 years to learn. I can honestly say I think I'm beginning to do that now. Really take a whole solo you know, telling a story with it. 
You are listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. Carol Martin, our next Minnesota jazz legend, began her career at 19 years old, and although she could sing any style of music, fell in love with the sound of jazz in her early 20s. Carol's passion for a great lyric and her overall musical delivery brought her to some of the most prestigious supper clubs in the Twin Cities, performing with Percy Hughes and Buddy Davis, and eventually to the club that brought her the most joy, the Artist Quarter. Carol has been inducted into the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame and has had a day proclaimed in her honor in 2004. Here's Carol Martin. They're writing songs of love, but not for me. A lucky song of love, but not for me. With love to lead the way, I've found more clouds of gray than any Russian play could guarantee. I want to welcome to the show Carol Martin, who is a Minnesota jazz legend and has been for so long and in my heart an inspirational singer. Thank you for being here. Thank you for asking. Something I always do is I start out with talking about your family. What was it like growing up? Well, I grew up with three sisters and mom and dad, of course. We did have music going all the time, but a lot of that had to do with my grandfather, Jay Gould, who was the circus man. He had nine children. They were all entertainers, dancers, singers, musicians. And so that's where it all started when I needed to work. I decided I could sing because everybody else in the family could. I loved so much music. And my sister and I, we both played piano, so we could play for ourselves and we bought all this sheet music every time something came out. And at a store in the Twin Cities, you would go and buy it and... Uh... No, actually brought up in Faribault, Minnesota. And you're what age with your sister at this point? We were probably 10 and 12. Did you end up joining the troops of your aunts and uncles and your grandfather? I never was in the circus itself. How about your folks? After they married, my mother quit. How did you use that voice of yours? My sister and I were both in a, a group called Triple Trio. That was in Faribault as well. It was as okay. well. Which kinds of shows did you do? Well, it was just musical shows when the choirs appeared and we would then perform with the Triple Trio. I really didn't ever think of pursuing it. It was more out of necessity <laughs> at one point. Talk about that experience, because you obviously made it to the Twin Cities, and at what age did you move up here? I was 16. Did it enter your mind that you could sing and maybe make a living? No, it never entered my mind. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was about 19 when uh, my husband left me with three children. So now I decided... I needed to make a living because up until that point I hadn't worked, but of course I was really young anyway. So I had three babies and I just had to get a job and I didn't know what I was going to do. And then that's when it occurred to me, well, you know, your family is all full of music and so why can't you? I decided to start at the bottom and which what I thought was the bottom for clubs. Yesterday 
All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday I started working at the Gay 90s, and I was there for a couple of weeks, and the owner really didn't think that I had that in me. And so the band at that point, which one of the members was Nate Wexler, and he said, no, I think you have talent, and I'm going to take you over for an audition at Mr. Nibs on 26th and 26th. He hired me, that was Norbert Martin, and that's, by the way, how I got my name. And so he said, now you should be Carol Martin. And I said, okay, that sounds good. My mother, she was a little mad at me. She thought I should be a Gould, which was the family circus name, Jay Gould's Million Dollar Circus. So that's how I became Carol Martin, stayed that way all the rest of the time. So you're at Mr. Nibs, and what kind of music are you doing there? Well, that was more show tunes, and it was great. Marty Nevers, Armin Fraser, Sonny Lyons, and Dick Marone. So it was accordion, organ, horns. And then at that point, he started questioning my talent also. He said, she's so shy, I overheard this conversation. So I got up and I sang, A Good Man's Hard to Find. Okay. I won. I saw another side. (laughs) Well, I kept walking on my breaks, walking over to Duffy's, and I loved the music. I couldn't believe the jazz part of it. It was just fantastic. And they said, I want to do that. That is where the bug bit me. Talk to me about who was in that band. One was Art Resnick. And I really don't remember who else, because I really didn't know anybody in that field at all. And so then they got let go, but they wanted me to stay. (laughs) Then I'm working with a group called Terry and the Pirates. Now that's a total turnaround from the music I was just doing with art. So it was challenging, but I needed the job, so I stayed. And then what happened next was simply amazing to me. Irv Sheckman came from the White House, unbeknownst to me, and they had two rooms of entertainment, the apartment, which was a private club, and the bamboo room upstairs. I went out there to see him because he invited me out, and he said, I'd like you to audition for me, and I said, fine. Where would you like to do this? He said, well, just sit down at this table and sing to me. And I sang The Nearness of You, and he hired me. And I was there for a year and a half. Because in those days, you could stay in the clubs, and you'd work six nights a week most often, and they'd keep you forever. He had national acts coming in, and so what we would do is we would alternate sets. I'd go down to the apartment, they would go to the bamboo room. Can you remember some of the musicians you worked with at the White House? The first one was Buddy Davis, and... What a wonderful man he was. Talk about him. What instrument did he play? He played piano. And really, at that time, that was all I had uh, was piano. It was wonderful music. I used to cry coming home at night because I thought Buddy was so wonderful, and I was such a novice. And so what he did, I'd go over to his house, I'd sit on the piano bench with him, and he would sing songs 
always the verse. And then he'd say, okay, you do it. He expected a lot, and I delivered. I loved verses. Do you have a favorite? Well, the verse, probably, blame it on my youth. You were my adored one. Then you became the bored one. And I was like a toy that brought you joy one day. A broken toy that you preferred to throw away. If I expected love When first we kissed Blame it on my youth And I know you eventually made your way to a place called The Point. The Point, I think I started there in 66. And I went there twice. And stayed long times, two years, three years. And in that time, that was when Percy... Hughes was the band leader and had great players with him. That was all beautiful. I mean, I made another album there. And was that a live album? It was live. It was live at the point. And it was recorded by Lake Hammond and Dick Driscoll. And, And they are in the basement where the ice machines are and all this noise. And they're down there together putting this CD together or this LP. And that was wild in itself. Don't ask me how they ever did that because that had to be tricky. What's the name of that album? The music that makes me dance. You were a destination entertainer to go see. Well, I think I'm going out of my head. Yes, I think I'm going out of my head. Over you. Over you. I want it. I need you so badly, I can't think of anything but you. There were other jazz clubs in town, and I know you worked a few of them. Talk about that. And I did, yes. The one big one was the Dakota. And Lowell Pickett was the owner, and he loved music as well. During that time, they decided to do the Great American Songbook. That was a wonderful time with Debbie Duncan, wonderful singer. Then I had... Gary Rayner, Phil Hay, and Don Stilly. They were just absolutely great. So was this an ongoing series then, Carol? Mostly it was George Gershwin. Okay. And, oh, Lucian Newell, she was also, and Bruce Henry. Yeah, that, those were the singers, great group. Embrace me. My sweet embrace. But the next thing that I want to get to, this is still the most important part of my life, the Artist Quarter. At first, we were at the one on 26 in Nicollet. It's just like there was no other place that had what the Artist Quarter had. And then eventually, Kenny took it over. And Kenny Horst is your son-in-law? Well, that was by far my most 
favorite place. I mean, not just a place for me to sing in, but watch the people come in and how they appreciated what was going on and the respect they had for musicians. And that's because of the way it was all put together, which was Kenny that did all that. The CD, Pieces of Dreams. Talk about this recording experience. That was actually done the morning after New Year's Eve, early morning. We're talking 8 o'clock in the morning. That was crazy. Well, that's when everyone could do it. It was a live session. It was at the Artist Quarter, and it's, like, pretty crazy. It is crazy, and you just sang your heart out. I did. I Well, I tried. <laughs> did you have horn players? Irv played Irv Williams, and also Gary Berg played. This was kind of a cute story, too, because when I was singing at the Holiday Inn in Roseville, Gary Berg walked in, and he played More Than You Know, and that was one of the songs I was singing. And I said, if I ever record, you have to do this with me. Did he play saxophone or did he play harmonica? Because he was the only guy in town I knew who could play jazz harmonica like Toots Thielman. And that's what he played. That's not your only CD that you have made in, I'll say, recent past, but uh, you, you made a second one, too, that I know we play here at Jazz 88. Right, and that was done with uh, Rick Germanson from New York, that Kenny, at the last minute, got him to fly in, flew him in. I fell in love. And then we also had Terry Burns, who is a magnificent bass player, and Kenny, of course. What is a high point for you in the expanse of your career? I was inducted into the Minnesota Music Hall of Fame. And then there was the time that I was named Carol Martin Day in St. Paul, and that was in 2004. And then singing at the Artist Quarter, I never felt so great in my life. Would you have a piece of advice for up-and-coming jazz musicians and singers? The best advice that I would give is don't give up. Just keep going forward. You'll get there. I did, and if I did, you can too. More than you No. Carol Martin, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. You are listening to Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders. Our next Minnesota Jazz Legend is Maurice Jaycox. Maurice has been a part of the Minnesota music scene since his late teens. He started playing flute, eventually segueing into baritone sax, and when Maurice joined the R&B group Willie and the Bees, he also became known for his vocals. Since his early teens, Maurice has always embraced jazz, and today, this award-winning jazz vocalist finds himself touring the country with her tribute show to Nat King Cole. Would you please help me welcome to the stage the incredible vocalist, Mr. Maurice Jaycox. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. You came along, everything started to hum. Still 
Well, it's the real good bet. The best has yet to come. The best is yet to come, and they won't let me find. You think you see the sun, you ain't see the shine. Wait till the warm-up's on the way. Wait till our lips have met. Wait till you see that sunshine day. Ain't nothing like it yet. The best is yet to come. They won't let me by. The best is yet to come. Comes the day you're mine. I grew up in the church, Baptist church. Um, my mother had a beautiful singing voice, and uh, I sang in the junior choir for a while. My mother backed anything I wanted to do. My mother was the one who uh, had me taking piano lessons at three. She used to take me to musicals. She took me to see Leontine Price and William Warfield at Northrop Auditorium. She was the premier soprano touring in America. Yes. She took me to see Marian Anderson. She enrolled me in arts programs at the Institute of Arts and she introduced me to a world of art and music and beauty. I'm gonna teach you to fly. We've only tasted the wine. We're gonna drink the cup dry. Wait till your charms the right for these arms to surround. of friends of mine had a band in junior high school. During that time, we all kind of fell in the circle of a man named Paul Cotton, uh, who was my, truly my musical mentor, great drummer. He introduced us to jazz. Every day we're down and in this basement just, just laying back and being completely knocked out and just absorbing jazz like a sponge. One day, Paul comes over to my house and said, Hey, man, I just stopped over to pawn shop. Learn how to play this. And he hands me what turned out to be a flute case. It took me almost three days of practice to get one solid, clear note on the flute. And so that's, that's how I really got into jazz and wanted to, wanted to play. There was a boy 
very strange enchanted boy They say he wandered very far, very far over land and sea To some people that I knew, they were going and sitting in with Herb Schoenbaum By this time I'm carrying my flute under my arm everywhere I go These friends of mine are saying you know, come with us out to Magoos. We're going to sit in with Herb Schoenbaum. I go down with them. I got to play with these guys. Over the summer, I'm playing flute and tambourine, and I've developed this flashy style of playing tambourine and that I made up myself. To jazz? Using my hand and elbows. Schoenbaum's trio played nothing but Brazilian music. He had his own show. Here I am with my tambourine. Playing my two or three songs on flute, the crowd loved me. I'm almost addicted to it. Going down on Friday, and he knew that somebody was going to come and say, "Why don't you have Maurice up?" And it always happened. My popularity with the crowd grew and grew. And you end up rubbing elbows with some pretty huge people. Yes, uh, got to spend some time, quality time. The great Rossan Roland Kirk, Dizzy Gillespie was playing at a club in. Golden Valley called the White House and do a strange series of events by taking Kirk out to hang out with Dizzy one afternoon in rehearsal. I was invited back with the both of them to sit in on one song with Kirk on one side and Dizzy on the other side and I got to play flute. I have to say that even to this day, that's one of the biggest single moments of my life musically. Willie Murphy and I both went to Central High School. I see. And Willie was a year or so ahead of me. And next time I saw Willie, I've never called him Willie, Bill Murphy to me, always will be sorry, but he's Bill. And it was around that time that Murphy started saying, oh, I got this idea, man. I want to play a band, I want to make a band, play some stuff that I want to play and play some funky music, some good music. You guys interested? He's asking, going to all of us. Sounds good to me, yeah. I didn't have anything better going on. Actually be in a band, somebody want to take it, take this and make it into a unit. Bonnie had... Bonnie Wright. Bonnie had been on the folk and blues tour out on the East Coast. The whole circuit out there. And so Kerner, Ray, and Glover, who were the first accepted white blues artists in America in 1960, when Bonnie got her contract from Warner Brothers, she went to Dave Ray and Kerner and said, You should come back to Minneapolis and meet some friends of ours, a band that you think you'd like. Bonnie rented this defunct summer camp. It was uh, out on Enchanted Island in Lake Minnetonka. Moved everything out there. Dave Ray was the engineer. Originally, Bonnie didn't want um, any horns. Murphy and I took one of her songs called Finest Loving Man. At the end of the song, we just had the horns going, and Bonnie goes, Oh my God, got to have the horn. Yes, yes, yes. It's that simple. When you look up this man, he has been a fixture in our music history in the Twin Cities. And tell a little bit about some of the bands that you have been with through the years. Bands I've played with. Willie and the Bees. There for you go. 15 years. 
Also, we were the band that arranged, produced, and recorded Bonnie Raitt's first album, The Butane Soul Review, Honking Horns and Slapping Things. A band up in Duluth called The Wingtips, briefly. A Nat King Cole show that was one of the best things I've done and enjoyed. Then I've uh, played with uh, Mr. Steve Clark, Working Stiffs, and then Steve and I put together an amalgam of our talents and made a band called Blue Book. A few other things, um, through the Nat King Cole show and also through my friend Nachito Herrera, uh, I got to spend 10 days in Havana. I got to sing with the Cuban National 350-piece orchestra. If that's not bad enough, I actually had the audacity to sing Besame Mucho in Spanish. Everything I've done, it's like I stumbled into or... I know that you received an award for your jazz vocals in addition to other awards through the years. I grew up playing jazz. You uh, did? Okay. I was a jazz snob. Okay. Then moved on to San Francisco in 67 and ended up playing with a lot of people. Spent time hanging out with Jimi Hendrix and Buddy Miles and dropped a bunch of names of the... Oh, my gosh. Glitterati of San Francisco back in the late 60s, early 70s. Then I came back home and I was... That's when the bees started. Oh. And at the same time... I was getting this itch to sing jazz. And who gave me the first gig was Lowell over at Bandana Square, hired me to play and sing jazz for the first Love time. It. And uh, never looked back. And I know you have another song left to do that today. I have. Maurice J. Cox, everybody. Georgia. Georgia. Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind I said Georgia mm -hmm. Georgia Said a song A song of you Come as sweet As moonlight through the pines Other mm -hmm. arms reach out to me Other eyes smile tenderly Still, still in peaceful dreams I see oh, Georgia, Georgia, no peace to abide. Just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind. Well. Other arms reach out to me Other eyes, other eyes smile tenderly Still in peaceful dreams I see Oh, the world said it leads back 
that it keeps Georgia on my mind. Oh, oh, just an old sweet song, old sweet song. Minnesota jazz legend is drummer extraordinaire Kenny Horst. In his early years, Kenny began playing piano, writing arrangements with his father, but eventually fell in love with the drums after hearing live music on TV. He originally played in R&B groups, but eventually segued into playing jazz. Kenny's love of music didn't stop there. He was also invited to book live jazz for clubs like Davy Jones Locker and all three locations of the premier jazz club, The Artist Quarter, which Kenny owned and numerous jazz musicians called home. Here is Kenny Horst. I want to welcome to the show Kenny Horst, drummer extraordinaire. Kenny Horst, you are one of our Minnesota jazz legends, and you have been for years. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Patty. Uh, a pleasure. Talk about your home environment. Was anybody musical in your family? My dad was actually a classical pianist and a very good one. He actually helped me with figure out chords and stuff on the piano. I had to take piano lessons for a while. I was forced into it. And yes. you know, that never works. I hated it. I loved it, actually, but I didn't want to admit it because I could never go out and play with my friends. I had to practice the piano a half hour after I came home from school. And years later, I wished that I had been a little bit more open to it. Did that stick with you, the training that you had? I'm sure it did, somewhat. But I thought the drums were totally opposite, and I saw a drummer and um, thought, that looks like fun. I can't even remember who the drummer was. I had a paper out. I went out and bought a set of drums. I paid $100 for the worst possible set of drums you could ever get. <laughs> Brought them home, and I had been looking at the drummers on TV, right? Not realizing that I'm seeing it all backwards. And I'm playing backwards for I don't know how long until I figured it out. How old are you at this point? I'm probably in eighth grade. So you switched it around after a period of time, and then were you just a natural on the drums? I took lessons later after I had been playing for a while, but not at first. That's why for most drummers my age, they all play traditional grip. It was easier for me to play matched than traditional, although I did learn the traditional and got away from it after I learned it. Yeah, I set everything up backwards. 
I got into a band with a bunch of kids from Hopkins, and we were doing all these teen dances and playing the popular music of the day. We would sometimes back out-of-town people. I remember playing with the Grand Ole Opry. At the time, this was like probably early 60s. They really didn't like drummers, but they had to have a drummer for the Grand Ole Opry show. They told me the one thing, play with a brush, one brush, one stick, no hi-hat, no bass drum, just a snare drum, brush, and a stick. I was too young, too dumb to be offended. First place I ever booked that was called the Downtowner, Davy Jones Locker. Right. We were there for a few years. There was no jazz at the time. So I started a Saturday afternoon session there, and it went over really well. The guy said, you want to book the club and run it? But I said, sure. The Downtowner was on 7th and 4th Avenue. We had Manfredo played there, Rockwell played there, Mike Elliott. Davy Jones Locker used to bring in all these name people, and they would bring them in for two weeks. Listen no. to this. Dizzy Gillespie. Um, and he had, a Dizzy had Kenny Barron was the piano player at the time with him. James Moody was his saxophone player. Jeez. And I happened to be playing an afternoon gig. Downtowner had an afternoon thing, they called it Lunch A Go Go. And we had a three-piece band, we'd playing pop music, backing up the singers. All the musicians that were playing there at night would come down and we would get to meet them. I met Eddie Gomez, Thelonious Monk was there, legend people. I took Dizzy Gillespie up one time and the owner really, I didn't think he even knew my name, right? I walked in there with Dizzy Gillespie and it was, Kenny, how you doing? There weren't many jazz clubs. I think that's why I got the downtowner and started that. The artist quarter came shortly, well, maybe in the 80s, I think I started at 26th and Nicollet. All right. I had done a few gigs with Mose Allison, and Bill Warner owned the artist quarter at the time. He had booked Mose Allison in there, and Mose told him, call this drummer. Mose gave Bill Warner my phone number and said, have him get the bass player. Through that, I got to know Bill, and I did a little tour that Bill had booked, and Mose used me on that. One day, Bill called and said, I'm going to turn the artist quarter into jazz full-time, and would you book it? I said, sure. That's how that started. We brought in a lot of national people on 26th and Nicollet. Joe Pass, Herb Ellis, Charlie Bird, we Harold Land. Most played all three AQs. Lou Tobacken played all three AQs. And then you realized that that was coming to a close for what reason? Some guy had bought the property and he was going to phase the AQ out. This was like closed in 1990. There was nothing really. It was kind of a void, you know, no AQ. I think 94. A friend of mine that I had gone to school with, Rudy Garcia, had this place called Garcia's. It was down the basement of the McCall building, and he asked if I would bring a band in. I brought a band in, and he had people there all of a sudden. He hadn't had any people. And he says, hey, you want to take this over? Figure, how am I going to do this? 
So I got a little uh, group of people together. We went in there and ended up moving to the Ham Building, and we got to design the Ham Building. All the walls painted black. You did that until? 2014. We 14. closed on New Year's Eve, 2014. Wow. Long haul. It got to be too, actually, too much of a devotion. And I mean, even the playing got to be like secondary because we were always like one step ahead of the rent guy, you know. Oh, but we ne I've never bounced a check, never defaulted on a bill, went out not owing anybody anything. The only one that didn't get paid was me. I mean, there were weeks that I would take a check, but I wouldn't cash it. I had a whole drawer full of uncashed checks. That had to be really hard. Yeah, I mean, you have a family. You've got children and grandchildren. Right. That talks about the spirit of who Kenny Horst is to me, though. I mean, we had our good times. We had, you know, a while that was actually pretty lucrative, you know, considering it's yeah. a jazz business. But it was always up and down, you right. know. And the la when they started thinking that we're doing pretty good, they started raising the rent, and that took care of that. <laughs> so in this amount of time, though, you were running the artist quarters, plural. You had a unique opportunity. Can we talk about you becoming basically a producer of some pretty incredible recording projects? We would run a DAT fairly frequently. We wouldn't listen to him. We'd turn it on, and it would record sometimes the whole night, the breaks and everything. We talked about the Bobby Peterson CD came out of that, because when Bobby died, I realized, well, gee, he just played the club. I've got a recording. Should go back and listen to that. And a CD came out of that. Also, Lee Conan, end of the night, Lee says, boy, that was great. He says, I wish we had a recording of that. And I go, you know, we do. He says, let's put it out. You mentioned to me the name Billy Shield, and you managed to get a recording that you ended up putting out. Well, actually, Billy recorded that. He had brought a tape recorder, and he brought it to us, actually, and said, I'd like to put this out. We did. Bill Carruthers, Billy Scheel, Billy Peterson, and you. Right. So let's talk about the Tuesday night band with Billy Holloman. At first, it was me and Billy. I, it was a cheap night for me. I had one guy to pay. It started out, there were no people. He said, well, I'm going to start cooking. So he started cooking this soul food and bringing it down. People started showing up for the food. And then we did food once a month. After a while, all the Tuesdays were packed. And actually, that Tuesday night ended up being our saving grace. We had one Tuesday night, believe it or not, we had 300 people pay cover charge. That place, the seating capacity was about 125 people. Tuesday nights were just off the chart. You couldn't get in, there'd be a line. I 
I would love to talk to you about Iris Sullivan. Iris taught himself to play saxophone and flute, and musicians all know. He became a pretty good soprano sax and flute player and worked a lot as a flute player. But Ira was just one of those kind of special guys. I mean, he had more energy in his 70s and 80s than a 10-year-old. The, the gig would be over, and he'd still want to play. Two o'clock in the morning, Let, guys, let's have a session. You know, he was just an unbelievable spirit. I think all the time about what was a highlight and, and what was a low, I think the financial things were always the lowlights, and that was sort of ongoing. You have to deal with that. People ask me all the time, who is your favorite person, and that, again, is possible. But I always, for some reason, always think of Mose Allison. Mose is not exactly the standard kind of a jazz guy by any stretch of the imagination, but I think the fact that he did all three of the AQs, and I always loved lyrics, and Mose had a song about everything. You can't mention a subject that he doesn't have a lyric for. I guess I just liked his lyrics. Ever since the world ended, I don't get out as much. People that I once befriended just don't bother to stay in touch. Well, ain't that just like living, just like tall and stride? Ain't that just like living, whatever happened to real life? Whatever happened to real life? I'm looking at the lyrics on the CD that you did, one for Morris. What promoted some of those lyrics? The one that I'm most proud of, as far as lyrically, is the, the one for Morris, it's okay. called. And that, it's the story of what a soloist might be thinking when he's playing a solo. And that's sort of what that song is about. From one for Morris. Yeah, screaming in the night like a fire burning bright. Sounds in the darkness penetrate the night. Made of woven thoughts, woven dreams and clever schemes. Sheets of sound for its compensation for the soul of remedy. That was, you know, I, that's the one I'm most proud of. Screaming in the night, like a fire burning bright. Sounds in the darkness that penetrate the night. Made of woven thoughts, woven dreams and clever schemes. Sheets of sound as compensation for the solar remedy. Do you have any advice for young people who want to get into this world of jazz? <laughs> Don't do it. How can you talk down the voice inside that says you have to do it? We call it the curse. I think that the broader spectrum that you have, like I see these people are majoring in jazz. They couldn't play a pop gig. They're specialists where... In my era, you were a musician. You did music. Kenny Horst, drummer extraordinaire, jazz club owner, dear friend, thank you for being a part of Minnesota Jazz Legends. Thank you, Patty. It's been an honor for me. Thank you again. Thank you. You've been listening to the Minnesota Jazz Legends, The Elders, hosted and produced by Patty Peterson. The featured musicians were backed by the house band, Phil Aaron on piano, Graydon Peterson on bass, and Phil Hay on drums. 
Production engineers are Steve Weiss and Miles Hansen and Scott Melchow from Creation Audio and Plus Six Productions. Special thanks to Crooner Supper Club for the use of their stage for the live concert. This show is brought to you by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and Jazz 88, 